Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, our weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. This is part two of our FT Live episode. As you might have heard in the other episode, we did a live podcast at Bracken House in front of you, podcast listeners. But the questions we had were so good, we thought we'd release that as well. So here's the Q&A that followed our live podcast, covering issues from business relations with the Johnson government, the prospect of United Ireland, and what's going to happen in the Scottish Parliament elections next year. So enjoy our further conversation from FT Politics Live this week. Yeah, there were some questions, chap, here. We're in the heart of the city. Why are we hearing more about financial services in our discussions with the European Union? And a quick one across the panel. How long do you give it before Dominic Cummings blows up? Well, let's do the Dominic Cummings one first. Um, I'm going to go for this time next year. Robert, just on Dominic Cummings. I think about 18 months, but I think it's more likely that he will walk than be sacked. I agree with that. George? Yeah, I agree with that as well. Miranda? Well, he does this trick, doesn't he, saying, don't get used to me, I'm not sticking around, which then allows him to keep everyone on tenterhooks about whether he'll stay or not. But it seems to me he's quite enjoying it, so I certainly wouldn't expect him to go soon. But I think it will become an unsustainable situation, as it did with Cameron, when Cameron famously said, this guy's a career psychopath, get rid of him. Jim? 15 months, and then he'll return to his basement up north reading very complicated things and writing blogs that no one understands. It's actually a bunker on a farm, to be technically right. George, do you want to take this question about the city and its role here? Because one thing is interesting, when the Brexit process began, the city wanted to be as close as possible to Mm -hmm. the EU, to have full access, even if that meant rule-taking in some way. But the city has been on a journey, and Mark Carney, who was interviewed by our outgoing editor Lionel Barber, and he said in that interview, in fact, we shouldn't take rules, it would be unsustainable, and if it's a choice between rule-taking and no market access, then we should take no market access. The day after the referendum in 2016, I thought I'd be spending the rest of my time as political editor writing about the City of London and Brexit on a daily basis, and the fact that I haven't has always puzzled me why that hasn't been the case, and I think part of it's to do with the extreme adaptability of the city, the fact that it's just gone on with it, as it always has done, as it did after the euro was set up and everyone was supposed to be moving to Frankfurt. So I think that was part of it. I think there was secondly the point that Seb makes, which is that initially the city thought it could maintain single market access in some way, and then it became patently obvious that wasn't on offer from the European Union. Then they had to flip on their head and say, oh, well, the equivalence regime, sorry to get boring and technical on this, is something we can live with. And I think basically the reason it hasn't become more of an issue is that that is where it will end up, that there will be a mutual equivalence regime with them acknowledging the equivalence of our rules in terms of maintaining financial stability. The key thing about that, as you know, is that the unilateral equivalence regime means that the EU has the right to withdraw it with a 30 days notice. And I think that is, if you're looking for the sort of how have they got their hands around our throats, that is it. When you talk about fish, and we've written about fish and finance being links, 
The fact that the EU can, at 30 days' notice, cut off access to the City of London to its main markets is a huge thing at their disposal. They'll only mutter about it darkly. It will never be explicit, but that will always be there lurking in the background, that if we don't play ball on haddock quotas or something, then the derivative market gets it, or something like that. You know. I think if those fishermen, <laughs> Peter Heller, would be quite concerned about that. Yes, who else? Do you want to go for a chap here? So on the one hand, the government says it's perfectly prepared for friction at the border, the trading relationship. On the other hand, they are making absolutely no infrastructure preparations at Dover, Harwich, anywhere like that for more friction. Michael Gove has been on record to say that a smart border will take five years, at least probably 10, if you think about government IT systems to implement. Why does anyone take them seriously when they say they're prepared? Jim, do you want to take this one? Because the Cabinet Office is meant to be in charge of overseeing preparations for the real Brexit day that comes yeah. at the end of this year. And they've been telling businesses, you need to get ready for this. And of course, we should remember, without all these rows about the Home Office, the Home Office is going to be in charge of all the new border regime, all the new immigration regime, and doing all the tariffs and customs paperwork exactly. within a year. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's cause for great optimism there. And I remember getting a leak a year or so ago of a DFT document which showed just the extent to which things go wrong if you just add 30 seconds of checks or 40 seconds or a minute or whatever it is, you suddenly get this exponential queues of lorries going back miles, even all the way to the M25. That's what's at stake if they get this wrong. Miranda? Something I showed, say, in answer to your question, but also to the previous question, is also the interesting thing has been as how badly businesses managed to make its voice heard on any of these considerations. And I think now, in a way, the fact that Michael Gove is managing to almost shift the responsibility onto business to prepare is quite clever on their part. Um, It's a slightly more subtle blame game than they've been playing with Brussels, but it's a blame game nonetheless. Because, obviously, if you say, OK, we've now decided there is going to be friction, there will be consequences for that which will irritate the populace and they're trying to avoid the blame for it, I think. And we should always just remember this whole thing of the Conservative Party, which was the party of business, which is now telling business to go and do one most weeks. is just quite extraordinary. Who's else? There's been conversations about fish and perhaps more connectedly. Just interested to know what to expect from the government with regards to issues like climate change, considering that COP26 is coming ahead and we're supposed to be in charge of that. So what can we expect from the government? Robert, do you want to look at this one? Because first of all, COP26, we could say, is looking to be a spectacular British disaster so far, with Westminster and the Scottish government in constant rounds about who has use of the sports centre opposite the conference venue um, and which flag should be flown when the delegates arrive there. But climate change is an interesting one for this government because generally climate denialism or scepticism has kind of gone from the Conservative Party. Boris Johnson, his partner, Carrie Simmons, are very pro-tackling climate change, as is Zach Goldsmith. But with regards to Brexit as well, what do you think they'll end up doing on EU environmental standards? You'd assume they'd kind of sign up to it. I think they'll certainly align with it. I don't think that's the issue. I think you're right. The one interesting thing about this Conservative Party, if you compare it to the Republican Party in the US and a number of right-leaning parties elsewhere, is that the Conservative Party has never wavered so far from the mainstream on the environment. Now, you can argue whether they go far enough but they've never rejected the climate change consensus. They accept it, and it's Theresa May who put forward the 2050 target. Zach Goldsmith being brought back as environment after he'd lost his seat. Lots of good arguments against that, but the one good argument for it is he's genuinely committed to environmental policy. I think there are two questions. One is around COP and whether the government is simply doing enough 
to ensure any success here. I mean, you have to spend a year at a high level lobbying all the important nations of the world to make them sign up something. This deal is not going to be done at COP. You have to have done all the work more or less beforehand. And the change in personnel and the leadership of this, the sideshow rows about where it's going to be held, none of these point to a government which is laser-focused on getting a good agreement at COP. So I think that's a worry. The other thing that bothers me, I have to say, is that I don't really know that this government has grappled intellectually with the consequences of its policies on the environment. You know, the Labour Party at the last election had, as Jim said, a staggeringly radical set of policies, but it did understand they were staggeringly radical. It did understand it was re-engineering the whole economy. When you look at the difference between where the Labour Party was at the election and where the Conservative Party is now, we're talking about essentially a gap of around 14 or 15 years. The supposed goals are roughly the same. It is an enormous economic disruption, and I don't think this government's got its head around it at all. And it's all very well to say, for example, we're going to phase out fossil fuel industries. But what about all the other manufacturing industries that rely heavily on fossil fuels or high energy intensive industries? I haven't heard anything from this government that says to me they're addressing this at all. And one last point. When Boris Johnson government announced a couple of weeks ago their plan on electric cars and the drive towards electric vehicles, I just found myself thinking, that's great. You've willed the end. I see nothing that says you have willed the means. And you've also, in the process, killed hybrid vehicles, which might have been a way to get there because people who are looking at electric cars and saying, I don't think the infrastructure's there yet, might have taken chances on hybrid cars. But essentially, in one announcement, they've told everybody, we're going to kill these in 15 years. So... I just don't think this is a government that's got its head around this seriously enough. If I can pile in on, on this one, the setting of the 2050 net zero carbon target was in some ways almost the easiest bit. So you have this huge symbolic target and you can say, look at us, aren't we doing amazingly well? They are doing a huge Whitehall cross-departmental piece of work this year, which I think is going to conclude in around October, November. And one of the names for it is how do we get there? Because when you look at the challenge ahead, people think of electricity and you see ministers boasting that half of our electricity is now sometimes coming from low carbon like wind and nuclear. But electricity is only a third of the energy we use. Transport systems, another third or so. Household boilers are another third or so. To get to this target, you have to rip out 20 million household boilers and replace them with something based on electricity. You have to change the whole transport system. And you then have to increase the amount of electricity we have threefold. And the government is nowhere near anything like that. And we were talking earlier about fuel duty and the political fear installs in them. Should we put up fuel duty? Oh, we don't want to antagonise 20 MPs on the blue wall. Ditto air passenger duty. Flybe came close to collapse. Part of the government's rescue package for Flybe involves reviewing air passenger duty. If they end up in the budget cutting air passenger duty, the signal that will send out about how unserious they are on the 2050 target and how they have no concrete detailed pathway to getting there will be quite profound. Amanda? I think there's a huge, huge conundrum for both main parties on the climate change agenda and just how unbelievably politically unpopular it could be if it's done the wrong way. I mean, look at the Gilets Jaunes, look at the fuel duty protests here back in 2002 when they put up fuel duty too quickly, and even the Blair government, powerful though it was, was massively on the back foot. You know, if you tackle environmental policies the wrong way, you've got real populist uprising problems on your hands. And actually for the Conservative Party, with its new political configuration of who now supports it, in which bits of working class communities in the north, etc., it's even more difficult for them than for 
Labour arguably <coughs> kind of virtue signal from opposition. Now we should try and get as many people as possible. So let's take three questions and then we'll whip through them. Hi, just a quick question. Do you think the Conservative Party's fundamentally changed in the way that the Republican Party changed a couple of years back in my home country, Australia? The Liberal Party and Scott Morrison, I guess, was a different demographic. Yep. Do you think it's a small shift or it's going to be permanent? Very good question. Thank you. Uh, looking ahead to the Scottish elections in May next year, what do you think Nicola Sturgeon does if the SNP either repeat the position they're in now as being the largest party or indeed get a majority? Brexit, for example, goes badly. Do you then try what the Catalans uh, did and fail to do? Or because at a certain point, something has to give? And there's one more. Yep. To what extent do you think the media is underreporting the dangers of no deal? and other elements with regard to what's currently going on in our country. For example, the potential change to the fixed terms, the Parliament's Act, the Russian report, lack of responsibility with regard to reporting various very serious issues. And also you have a Prime Minister who seems more interested in photo opportunities and disappearing off the face of the earth whenever you have anything serious going on in the country. I mean, my concern is that this Brexit opportunity is a wonderful opportunity for a journalist to have a great fun time discussing what's going on, but not actually communicating enough how serious the situation we're in. Thank you. Robert's got to dash off. So do you want to take the first and the last one there about media coverage of all these issues and how the Tory party has changed? I apologise. It's the secretary of my old politics room in uh, Westminster who's having her 80th birthday party, which is why I've got to rush off. So the Conservative Party. Interesting question. It's definitely changed from the Conservative Party of David Cameron which had become a more socially liberal, more metropolitan Conservative Party. The question is whether it's gone back to being more like the Conservative Party it once was. The one silver lining in the way the Conservative Party has gone, I think, is that it is a good thing that the governing party cares about parts of the country other than the rich parts. It is a good thing that the governing party is interested in areas of the country other than the South. And I think if that changes the issues that the Conservative Party focuses on. If the Conservative Party develops a genuine northern strategy which delivers for people it previously felt capable of ignoring, that is a useful thing. And I think when we talk about one nation conservatism, it's worth remembering the origins of that phrase, go back to Disraeli, were all about uniting the rich and the poor. It wasn't about uniting the socially liberal and the socially illiberal. And I think it's become a euphemism for social liberalism, Tory wets, and I think what Boris Johnson is doing is taking it back to what it once was. Now, whether that works is a different question. On the media, I don't know. I think we're reporting quite a lot of things. And I think most of these... <laughs> are... No, no. Uh. But, but, you know, we have a right-wing press in this country. We have a partisan press, and most of the media has a bias. The FT has a bias towards capitalism. We all have biases. And some are more overt than others. I think one of the things that's changed in the media landscape with the move to digital news organisations, is that the entire business model of, of the media has been broken. It's been completely shattered by the internet. And news organisations are having to think about different ways of making money. They once relied entirely upon advertising. Now they increasingly are relying on subscriptions. If you have a subscription model, or if you're a free model, you have to make sure you are pulling in the clicks. You have to make sure you're keeping your subscribers if you're a subscription business. And if you're, say, the Daily Telegraph and you're fighting for attention with the Times and the BBC and whoever it is, to be the official voice of the right, to be the official voice of Brexit, is a prize worth having in economic terms. Commercially, that's where you need to be. And I think one of the problems that we're facing is that the media ecosystem is not very good at supporting something approaching straight news. And that's a problem for all of us. 
and it goes way beyond the specifics of this government. Please excuse me. It's been a pleasure being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robert. Thank you. Um, I'm going to take this point about Scotland and what happens in 2021. What's happening in Scotland is totally fascinating. There was a BBC report this week that set the cat among the pigeons, which said that questions are now being raised about how much longer Nicola Sturgeon has got left as leader of the SNP. Because she's been there for quite some time now. And, you know, we've obviously got the Alex Salmon trial coming up, which is widely expected to get a lot of the party's dirty laundry out in public. You've got this push for a second Indiref and questions about the SNP's track record in government. So what are your thoughts on all that? So the SNP is so fascinating, and Sturgeon herself is so fascinating, partly because she's such a good performer and has such astonishing political skills, and because of the way that that party gets away with huge surges of supported election time being viewed as a campaign, whilst also being in government and not being held to account in the way that normal governing parties are. I think if they do do very well in the Scottish parliamentary elections, she will be under enormous pressure from her kind of fundies, her fundamentalists, who will want her to go for a second independence referendum. And actually part of her time as leader has been the whole time taken up with trying to sort of dampen down expectations on that wing of her own party. How long can she get away with that? Will they actually take no for an answer if she says no, it wouldn't be the responsible thing to do a Catalonia and have an illegal referendum, which would be a kind of quite explosive decision to take. She personally doesn't want to do that, right? She There's lots in her party down. who do, though. There's plenty in the SNP who would like to go down that route. And of course, she's had quite warm signals from senior people inside the EU. Donald Tusk quite recently said, you know, if Scotland wants to go independent and come back into the European family of nations, we'd feel warm towards Scotland. But if you're going to try and do that, of course, you want to not alienate Madrid by behaving like Catalonia and all the other European countries who have their own sort of separatist secessionist movements that they're trying to keep under control. So it's a very difficult balancing act for her. And she's a brilliant, brilliant operator. They've got a few torrid months coming up in Scotland anyway because of the Alex Salmon trial. It's going to be really interesting to see the balance of forces inside the SNP and whether she can continue to be this kind of moderating force on the more extreme secessionists. Just very quickly, I long thought that um, if the SNP won in 2021 and that there would be un unstoppable pressure on Boris Johnson to offer a second referendum. I've now completely revised that. I've got no doubt that as long as Boris Johnson's Prime Minister, he will not offer a second referendum to the Scots because he's not going to be remembered as the British Prime Minister who lost half his country, or part of his country at least. And there's another reason, of course, now, as Rand has just been outlining, why they will, might use it as a tactical decision not to grant a second referendum, which is you exploit those divisions inside the SNP about whether you go for an illegal referendum or not. Plus the Salmon trial just seems to me that the incredible, almost sex-like loyalty and discipline of the SNP. I, mean, I can't remember a political party being as completely disciplined as that party has been over more than a decade. Uh, incredible, uh, but you can see it's just starting to break up. Yes, let's take three more questions. Um, last week, The Economist led with a leader about a united island. What does the panel think of the likelihood of that happening in, say, the next 10 years or so? Thank you. I have a question about that relates to when we're talking about the Labour Party being sort of cult-like. see this trend slightly in America as well and in different political spectrums where there's this almost religious fervor and, and this religious component to 
politics, and in particular when it comes to litmus tests, it's almost as if someone isn't sufficiently left-wing or right-wing that they're an infidel in a way, or I know that that's an extreme way to put it, but you have to stick with the religious text in this way, and I'm curious your thoughts about that. Thank you. In terms of the uh, fabled uh, U.S. trade deal, which uh, U.S. presidential candidate do you think is best placed to deliver? Very good question there. Okay, you can all think about that one. I'll leave that one to last. <laughs> Let's start with United Ireland. Miranda, do you want to take this one? That obviously we saw Sinn Féin's amazing rise during the recent <coughs> elections in Ireland, and there's been so many polls that show that demographic changes do push us more towards potentially a United Ireland. The Economist, as you said, sir, was saying that uh, you know maybe this is where it could be heading and how it might work potentially. Um, I do wonder if it's a bit overwrought, though, sometimes. So it is really fascinating, this, isn't it? Because in a way, it's sort of to do with whether Sinn Féin can pull off an SNP trick, you know, as we've just described, which is to be a political campaign with a history whilst becoming a mainstream party. And I thought it was quite interesting the way that the very charismatic current Sinn Féin leader went from saying, well, we're going to demand a border poll on a United Ireland almost immediately within a year and then sort of backtracked a bit. And, of course, once you get involved in potentially being part of government in Ireland, you'll have a whole bunch of other priorities that people were actually voting on in Ireland to do with the housing crisis, etc. So that won't be in the minds of, of most Irish voters if they want Sinn Féin to deliver for them. But on the other hand, I think this possibly has got a bit overruled. But it's quite interesting that nearly 60% of people in the Republic of Ireland think that there actually should be a referendum on both sides of the border about whether to reunite on the island of Ireland. So, I mean, there is an appetite there. It's just a question of whether it's an appetite that Sinn Féin can kind of ride to becoming a powerful mainstream party or whether it's something which they actually want to make their priority when it might not be the priority of their voters. Jim, I'm going to come to you on this point of political devotion here, because you've touched on this a couple of times about what you've seen the Labour Party, Mm. the Jeremy Corbyn. Why do you think it developed with Jeremy Corbyn? Because when he became leader, we were all taken by surprise in the media. There's no doubt about that. I think most of the Labour Party was taken surprise by. But it did develop over time. It became more and more cultish about criticising Corbyn. And it's still the case now in the Labour leadership contest when they were all asked to rate how Mr Corbyn was out of 10, with Rebecca Long-Bailey saying 10, I think. And then it was um, Emily Thornby who said two or something like that. And that became a litmus test. And two for winning. Two for winning. Well, obviously, didn't win. <laughs> uh, Seven for most Winning the argument. The exactly, winning the argument. Oh, you know, where do you think this thing comes from? Is it just out of a desire of, to believe in something? Or is it a desire of, if you have this text that's very pure, you can use that to create political dividing lines with your opponents? The convention in the mainstream media of of which we are part is to always kind of sneer at Corbynism and suggest it was always doomed to failure and it was always idiotic. And just in the view of being fair, I should always point out that they did get 40% in 2017 and that was 10 percentage points higher than Ed Miliband or I think Gordon Gordon Brown. Brown. So we should bear that in mind. Still didn't win though. But I think where it came from was social media. I think social media was the dynamite which created Trump, which also created Corbyn. I don't know how much of a role it had in Macron. But social media polarizes around people who are interesting, and it polarizes around people who have strong views. And if you're the person saying, it's actually a lot more complicated, 
and you need a technocrat, it, you would be just run over because you're in the middle of the road. That was sort of where we were a couple of years ago. I think in the last few years, where you've had leadership contests around the world, the interesting person tends to win Trump, Macron, Corbyn. Labour leadership contest is different because there is no interesting person <laughs> left, or at least no person. Makes no, people Lisa and Andy's Lisa quite Andy's interesting. But there's no person who puts fire in the belly of, of even the membership, I'm afraid. There's no one who is literally sort of makes them want to walk down the street clutching torches. <laughs> and even Lisa. <laughs> but this leads us on to the next thing, which is where does British politics go when Lib Dems doesn't have Remain to fire them up? Boris doesn't have Brexit to fire up the Tories. You know, if the election had happened after Brexit in February, we might be looking at a whole different situation. And where does Labour go without Corbyn? And I, I don't know the answer to any of those questions. I think things do calm down a bit, and you know, we write more about policy for a change, which is maybe less exciting, <laughs> but probably more interesting to people's actual lives. George, this thing about a US trade deal here. Now, this is obviously a big prize for Boris Johnson's government, and actually there's some stuff coming tomorrow on this with Robert Lighthizer, who's the US trade representative, coming for a four-day-long weekend with Liz Truss. Mm. Um, <laughs> and... This deal is obviously something that the Johnson government really wants to get to show that Brexit is a success because here is something you couldn't do outside the EU. But to this gentleman's question, which candidate would sort of be the best? In some ways, Trump is really pushing for this because he loves doing deals. On the other hand, I was speaking to one Conservative MP who put the theory towards that actually Bernie Sanders would make for a better trade deal because he loves the NHS and would not want to try and destroy <laughs> it in a trade deal. And he also loves farmers too. I don't believe that. It's just an interesting thought. Well, I thought the way you phrased your question, actually, you talked about the fabled US trade deal. I thought that was exactly the way I would put it. I'm not even sure that Boris Johnson really wants a big trade deal. I'm not sure that Donald Trump wants either. I think it's one of the things people talk about. There's so much guff talked about this. Unbelievably. Mostly by the government, I think. By by the government, by Donald Trump. Donald Trump was the other day saying that he wants to see trade between the two countries quadrupled. The Treasury's analysis is that even on the best case scenario for a trade deal, it would boost the UK's GDP by 0.2%. I mean, the whole premise of this whole thing is ridiculous because there's a massive amount of trade going on already. The kind of things we're talking about, removing are barriers to trade. The tariff barriers are already quite low. Most of the barriers that are in place still are in the field of agriculture. We know that any trade deal that doesn't include a big section of agriculture won't get through Congress. And we know that the agricultural demands being made on us are totally unacceptable, not only just to the farming community, but to consumers in this country. Therefore, the prospect of any significant trade deal, I think, is implausible. To answer your direct question, I suspect the candidate most likely to deliver a trade deal is Donald Trump, just because it was something they could do. But, but I think it will be very, very limited. Nobody understands trade deals anyway. Everyone will say it's a great success and then move on. I think the whole thing is a massive, massive distraction. And because people don't understand trade deals, they talk about this. The Treasury's analysis suggests that on all trade deals around the world, including America being the biggest, will add a, about 0.6% to our GDP. All of them. I was talking to a trade expert... <laughs> I was talking to a trade expert the other day who said the official analysis of Australia-US deal, I don't know when that was done, had concluded that actually Australian GDP had suffered as a result. So this, this myth that <laughs> trade deals are some kind of pathway to nirvana, which we see written everywhere every day, is, is a little bit... And can I just say, oh. very quick, the reason why it's become a shibboleth for the Brexiteers is because they used to think Brexit was about deregulation. But as soon as they realised there was no appetite in the country for deregulation, they had to have another economic rationale for it, which suddenly was, we're all going to become Francis Drake buccaneering around the world doing trade deals. George is looking forward to the US trade delegation arriving in London this week. Right. Well, 
can, can I just say we one more thing on that? Questions yeah, then, very just, briefly. Also, I just think the political cost here of the compromises that be necessary for the US trade deal is too high. I mean, today, the new environment secretary, who is a farmer himself, was being booed by the NFU because they're so worried about it. I mean, it's just politically undoable, I think. Trade deals are unpopular. Right, let's just take three more questions and um, before we retire back to some wine that. Um, hi, I'm going to immediately out myself as a European. Mm. And I have to say, I'm quite surprised by how much you emphasized how boring Stammer is because after four years of almost daily anxiety around Brexit, it seems to me it would be kind of nice to just have somebody calm and just going on about business. And I'm just interested in getting your view about why there's this thing about, oh, he's boring, you know? <laughs> it might be a bit naive. Thank you. Question spawned off something Miranda said about the pace and radicalism with which the government is approaching change, but perhaps it's just not going about it in the right way. I very much agree, but I'm also a bit nervous about the fact that I agree with that because reading papers like the FT and The Economist, as I do, and I'm sure everyone in this room does, I often find myself thinking and agreeing with comments like that, that, ah, oh, they're going about changing the right things and they've made the right diagnosis, but they're not doing it in the right way. And is there a danger of just saying, firstly, don't change stuff, and then when change is inevitable, we start saying, well, we do need to change that, but that's not the right way to do it. And I feel like there's kind of just a, almost a desire for inertia. You either can't get the right thing or you can't do it in the right way as far as people like us, quote unquote, are concerned. Thank you. If Donald Trump is reelected, which is increasingly likely, just given the realities of how the Electoral College works and sort of the undemocratic nature of the American system, do you think that the UK and the EU will sort of conclude that America is no longer a reliable partner or can no longer be trusted and they sort of have to go their own way when it comes to foreign policy? Very good question. I think you had a question as well. And this is our last one. Boris Johnson wants to, you know, develop the regions outside the south of London. Do you think we're going to see any development outside of where it's politically advantageous for him in the north? So, for instance, southwest, Northern Ireland, etc. Let's begin with boringness, Jim. Like, do you think we're being unfair? We're being really stuff? unfair. I think part of it is because we like personalities to write about and we like interesting politicians. <laughs> that I'm afraid there is some kind of bias there as well. Yeah, no, we, we've been very unfair. And the case for Keir Starmer, let's just put it on the record, is that he's a guy who did have a radical past as a young left-wing lawyer, supporting interesting cases like the McLibel people, supporting minors, you know, he was on the picket line at Wapping. He's a man of great integrity, and you know, I've spoken to a lot of people who know him and think that he's a very genuine guy. He was also the DPP, where he ran an organisation with 8,000 staff, and when austerity struck, he got rid of his chauffeur-driven limousine and decided to take public transport, for example, and he will have fairly radical economic policies by the standards of the last 20 years of neoliberal, inverted commas, Britain. But when he stands up and speaks, he's a bit wooden. And I'd love to say he isn't, but having watched him a few times, and he's a really nice guy, he's a bit wooden. And in the world where you're competing against Boris Johnson, who, like Trump, just has the ability to suck the limelight onto himself, that could sap his political energy. Well, you take this point about change. I think the Home Office is a really interesting example of this because I think it was John Reid who said 10 years ago the Home Office is not fit for purpose as a department. And there's been so many times Windrush being the precise example of that. Now we've got a Home Secretary who's coming in, who's shaking things up, but it's just probably because it's things that we maybe don't like that we're sort of criticising it. You know? So do you think there's actually a situation where the Johnson government does shake things up for the better in the long run, even if the policy outcomes are not necessarily things that we sort of would agree with. 
It's a brilliant question. But the premise of the question slightly assumes there's only two options. One is don't change anything and don't rock the boat. And the other is smash everything up in the hope that where the pieces land will be better. And I don't necessarily think that's the case. I mean, for example, if, to use my previous example, you look at uh, what they did at the DFE, this same team with Cummings at the centre of it, deciding that, you know, Blair was on the right track, but we'll do it, speed it up massively, but without buy-in from any of the people who we need to help us in the school system, actually resulted in a bunch of academisations which have shown no improvement in the schools where they forced it through. Do you know what I mean? So if you actually genuinely want to achieve change, it's really important how you do it. And I think part of the problems with the kind of Cummings agenda or what we know of it so far is we know what he hates, but we don't really know what it is he wants to build instead, if we had some more clues as to that, <laughs> we might feel happier, I think. And I guess policy outcomes is a lot to do with that as well, about what you're trying to achieve. So do you want to take this question about if Trump wins again and the, can the US be relied on for foreign policy, security, NATO? And there are conversations, I think, in government about this. We've obviously got this big integrated review that's starting, led mm. by Professor John Buin Downing, looking at the whole UK's role in the world. What's your sense on that? Well, I think the US, whoever the president is, will continue to be our principal global ally. I think there are deep ties in terms of military cooperation, security cooperation, which will persist below the political level, which will always be there. But the big thing I say about this is the longer you have someone like Trump there, the more it becomes obvious that the question is, whereabouts in the Atlantic are we? We are actually much closer to the continental shelf of Europe than the continental shelf of America. And look at some of the big decisions this government's had to take since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister on things like Huawei or where we stood on the Iran nuclear deal. We've always come down on the European side of that argument. And I think that's going to persist in spite of the superficial similarities between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump. Our interests often lie on the European side, I would say. And I think one thing that you see as well is that Emmanuel Macron was talking about the idea of having a 27 plus one security council. So after Brexit, the UK would still go to summits with other European leaders, have a European wide foreign security policy. That's one of the things that's been junked because of this uh, different approach. Faisal, what was your last question again? Sorry. Oh, yes. Pork balling politics. Yeah. Firstly, we should point out that spending per head. I think is much more generous than Northern Ireland particularly and Scotland. But parking that aside, will this lot do pork barrel politics? And we've seen it before on various occasions, particularly on George Osborne budgets years ago. I think as well, the Times did some very good research a couple of months ago at some particular fund for left behind areas. And when you looked through the columns, Tory areas, which were deprived, were getting far more money than Labour areas. And there's something going on at the moment, fair funding formula, I think it is, for councils where they were looking at changing it in a way that would have been advantageous to Tory shires. The whole blue wall transition of all those seats up north into Tory hands has potentially changed that. And I wouldn't be surprised if come the spring they have a rethink about how they were doing that because they were pork barreling in quite an obvious way, which won't help places like Great Grimsby, and they might change that. And then I think the further point to make is that with the loss of Objective 1 and Objective 2 type European funding to really left behind areas, which I believe in the past were Cornwall and West Wales and that kind of thing, there's no guarantee whatsoever that that money will, under the control of London, will go to the same places. And that, I imagine, will get port barrels straight at Great Grimsby and South Yorkshire and all those places which turned Tory. A few months yeah, ago. I, I'm from Devon. I think Devon and the West Country are going to be punished for voting remorselessly Tory because the West Country always did better when they were voting for Lib Dems because 
it's always has something to worry about. If you've got a not just a blue wall, but a blue wash across the whole peninsula, then why worry too much? Well, I think well, my folks up in the northeast will be absolutely delighted. Cool. Um, I think that's all we've got time for for this part of it. But thank you very much, everyone. That's it for our live FT Politics podcast episodes. Thank you as ever to George, Jim, Miranda and Robert for joining us. We'll be back to normal with our regular podcast next Saturday. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard, like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Jack Denton. Until next time, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.